He has fished eight classics, won two Bassmaster events, and is quickly becoming one of the most polarizing voices in professional bass fishing. Whether you agree with him or disagree with him, Randy Blockett, this week on... I'm Bob Cobb for the Bassmaster. Welcome to Mercer. Welcome one, welcome all, friends, family, freeloaders, fishing freaks. Everybody's welcome here at the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast that goes by my last name, which is Mercer. It is hump day. You're halfway through the week. Hope you're having a great week, and uh, hopefully this can make the second half of your week even better, because some of you are going to have to watch this in several days, because this is already a record-breaking show. I believe this is the longest podcast we've ever recorded, but trust me, it's worth it. So you have to break it in two parts, that's fine. Both of them are worth it. Um, Before we get into this week's podcast, though, I got to give a very special shout out to the guys from Advanced Taxidermy. I consider myself so lucky to call James and Sean, the owners, uh, personal friends. Uh, I've known them my entire career. And what they've done with that business um, it's taxidermy doesn't even seem like a strong enough word. Um, I mean, it's actually advanced taxidermy and wildlife design, and and it is art. What they do is amazing. They are the biggest taxidermist in North America. Um, it's amazing. So, those of you that have kids, you understand how life works. I mean, I'm a fishing pro, make my living from the sport of fishing. So you would think, oh, my kids are going to be into what I'm into. Well, my daughter has always been obsessed with taxidermy and and wildlife art. And uh, you would think it'd be fish. No, no, not much interested in that. More into the mammals um, because she's my kid. That's right. I mean, it's, it's, but it's awesome as a dad to be able to um, expose your kids to things that they love. And I was able to take Cadence down to visit uh, with Sean and James at uh, advanced and man james brought her to parts of of that building that nobody sees it's amazing their facility and um it was just an amazing experience it was amazing to see how excited my daughter was about all of that because that's that's her disneyland that's what she loves um so it was awesome it was awesome actually she her first words when she got in the car after being there, she said, other than being born, I think she feels like she can remember that, going to see Elton John, which that's a pretty big deal, the trip to advance was the greatest day of her life. So, I mean, they're in good company. If you're thinking about using um, that kind of service, give them a call because not only are they the best, they're also amazing, amazing people. Um, so thank you guys. And uh, enough about that. Let's jump into this week's podcast because this one's going to be a fun one. Um, we're going to have Randy Blockett back on here. And uh, he was on here six, seven months ago. And I mean, I tell him straight to his face during this one. Uh, you know, I'm like, Randy, sometimes I think you're crazy. You know, like I, I have a lot of respect for him. If you don't, you can't just push away what he's accomplished and and the things he's seen and done. Um, but in this podcast, he really opens up about a lot of stuff. 
And this podcast is like a good movie. I mean, we laughed, we cried. I mean, it's like a roller coaster ride of emotions. But it's pretty cool, so stick with us. Because um, Randy opens up about some stuff that I've never heard him talk about that happened through his career, you know, publicly really talk about. And um, and I also, you know, hold him to the fire in a few things. You know, there's been some videos that he's put out there that um, I've just been like, okay, if you're doing it for clicks, cool. But if you're not, you got to explain. And to his credit, he answers every single one of those questions here uh, this week. So, um I think you're going to enjoy this one. I know I enjoyed this one. Like I said, it's a long one, but um, it's it's worth it, man. Stick with it because you're going to see a side of Randy Blockett that maybe you haven't seen before. And um, I just think it's cool to to give him the opportunity to open up, and I'm thankful that he feels cool to do it on our podcast. And it's real easy to just spit thunder at someone and say i disagree with you but it takes a man to sit down face that discuss that and um i think you guys will enjoy this so without further ado here he is quickly becoming one of the most polarizing names in professional bass fishing the one and only randy blockett randy blockett through Bad Wi-Fi or hell water or whatever, we are connected. Um, it took us a while to actually figure out how to connect to each other. I don't know what either of us was doing wrong, but we're, we got you on your phone and um, you have built an incredible YouTube channel and none of it was built on technology. So, uh, so hopefully this podcast just stays with that same train of thought. <laughs> yeah, I know. It is, God, it's always a struggle, man. I can't even hardly you know, use the cell phone. That's why, that's why it's like I had, um, stuff like that, like technology or math is always tough. When I was in college, the only reason that I passed my college algebra was I had a, I had like a college algebra genius sitting next to me in class and he loved to fish. So he tutored me for free and I took him fishing for free. So it worked out good. I never would have graduated college without him. Nice. Nice. Well, um, I will tell you, I still waiting to run into my high school math teacher because I still remember, you know, one of those huge debates where I was like, why do we need this stuff? Like as soon as letters started becoming part of math, I'm like, ah, this is, you checked me out. This is the alphabet. This is not math. And, yeah. and they would say, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, we have calculators nowadays. We don't need this. And, and I remember the teacher being like, oh, so you're going to carry a calculator in your back pocket, are you? And I keep waiting to run in that teacher and be like, as a matter of fact, not just a calculator, it's a video camera, it's a still picture taker, it's a, you can stream the internet, you can do all of that stuff. So um, uh, it, it uh, I agree with you on the math thing. But uh, one thing that impresses me and continuously impresses me Channel continues to grow, Randy. You uh, you're kicking butt on YouTube and, and continue to. Yeah, so are you, man. I've been following you too. You're, you're growing unbelievable too, man. Yeah, it's just um, you know I, I've got a niche on mine. It's like uh, you know I've got you know there's a, a demographic that follows me that's that's pretty passionate about that. I've got a 
there's a demographic out there that can't stand me. So it's like, that's a great thing. There's a, there's enough fishermen out there to uh, go around for everybody, I guess. What, what percentage of your views, because you do have um, a passionate follower and, and, and the other, a passionate hater that follows you, but what percentage of your views do you think are from fans of Randy Blockett and what percentage of your views come from people saying, what is Randy Blockett saying this week? Yeah, I get, I get about probably 85% of the people I'm guessing that sort of share my same way of thinking or sort of on the same vibe as I am. And then you got, you know, 10 to 15, maybe 20%, depending upon the week that uh, they just, it doesn't matter what I talk about. You know, they, they, uh, they just don't agree with it. uh, So, you know, that, that element goes out there too, but I I don't know how much of that's tied to demographic age because I have a lot of people out there. I I get a lot of messages from like 20, 25 year old guys that say, man, I just love the old school approach. I'm sort of old school myself. So, you know, everybody's different, you know, <laughs> everybody's uh, unique to their own. I think that's the coolest thing about YouTube, to be honest. Um, it, it, in the past, you may not have got this voice that you have and, and many people, you, you look at um, just last week, a uh, giant YouTuber. Uh, it was, I thought it was a big deal because we were past 125,000 and I was all like, Oh my, this is crazy. We did it at the exact same time that Mr. Beast. Oof. past a hundred million subscribers. Um, and he's That's another crazy. example of somebody that would have never got that voice. But I think that what YouTube's done. And what I mean by that is in the past, you had to convince a TV executive, somebody that this is what people want to hear, but YouTube allows everybody to find their audience. And, mm-hmm. and, and you learn from, even when you find your audience, you learn there's some stuff they really like some yeah. stuff they dislike. Um, do you routinely communicate with, with the community that you've built? You know, I try to, I, you know, with the kids here and working all the time, I don't have like time to just like go through everything, but I try to, you know, take a few minutes a day and go through the comments and, you know, comment to some, I, I try to return some, some comments to the people to ask specific questions, but I try to read all of them because, you know, I, I want to sort of monitor if there's any nut jobs out there or anything on the channel. So, I try to at least read them, uh, comment to as many as I can. But uh, you know how it is, too. With as big as your channel is, it's just hard to keep up with that. And, and thankful for it. Because, I mean, I'm sure you were at the spot. I mean, everybody seems to hit that spot in the YouTube growth curve where you're just like, oh, this doesn't work. There has to, like, I remember literally I'd ask people, you know, like, what do you do? And they give the same advice. They're like, you just stay at it and you make unique things and you'll find you've, everybody's got their way and you'll find it. And, and I feel that both are champ, but there was times, I mean, for me at least where I was like, this is, why am I even doing this? This is just stupid. Um, did you ever go through that? Well, I, you know, mine sort of morphed a little bit. I started out, you know, just doing tips and I started getting a little bit more opinion pieces put in there. And, you know, just, I thought it was important. I thought it was important to sort of like, you know, used whatever voice I have to like bring some awareness to some things that I thought were important. And when you start voicing your opinion on any topic, that's when you start, you know, getting those, you know, detractors a little bit. I know that my wife, Kim, she gets on, she gets on me all the time. It's like, 
why do you do stuff like that to egg people on? Why don't you just do fishing tips like that? But that's sort of the nature of social media. You know, you got to have a little bit of a thick skin if you're going to have an opinion on anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting study of human behavior. I've always said that it's because uh, it's you can, you can learn a lot about, you know, how people react to different situations. Yeah. But I mean, and I don't know this for a fact, is there part of that? Like when you say, when Kim says to you, why won't you just do simple fishing tips? I don't know that Randy Block, it is simple fishing tips. Your entire career, like when I look back as a fan of yours, you know, watching you fill your boat, try to sink your boat to win a bass tournament and all the things that you've done, you've always been kind of a disruptor. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it goes way back, you know, but I think that one of the important things in life in general, specifically if you're on social media is you got to be yourself, man. You got to be authentic. And you can't really, you know, as long as you don't do something to make everybody hate you all the time, I, mean, I think it's a good thing to voice your opinion. Cause I think that, I think that people respect that if you put it in a context where you try to, you know, explain or justify your position and uh, everybody has that. I mean, and one of the great things I like about YouTube and social media, it's a great format to have a civil respectful debate or discussion. Um, and, like I said, I don't expect everybody to agree with me all the time. I, I don't put up with any like type of, you know, like vicious, you know, personal attacks or, you know, things that are way out in left field. But, uh, you know, it's a great format just to get a, a, a discussion going. And do you, do you have a formula for that? Like, do you like when the amount of videos you post, do you post two videos a day? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do two a day. It's an incredible, I mean, to do one a day is an incredible commitment, but to do two a day. So do you have a formula with that? Do you have like, we're going to post this percentage of tips, this percentage of, obviously you've got mental Mondays and, and this percentage of disruptive videos. I don't. Opinion pieces, I guess. To be honest, Dave, I don't know what I'm going to talk about even five minutes before I put the camera up there. I just. If I get some time in between everything that's going on in the house and my life, I'll go out in the tackle room and I'll just go out there and say, man, what's, what's a good topic and just, and just do it off the top of my head because there's always something. I mean, you know, as long as you've been fishing and I've been fishing, we've got thousands and thousands of days on the water. And when you've got that many days on the water, you've got so much experience and situational uh, events that have happened that you can talk about. And it's just, it's, it's never ending because bass fishing is the most complex, complicated sport out there. You've got so many different variables, controlled and uncontrolled, and all those are topics that you can talk about. And, you know, the, the opinion pieces, it's, it's, hard, it, it's hard when you're talking about anything not to include different things in life that have an impact on that. You yeah. know, that's, that's when I start pulling those in there a little bit. And I that's usually when I get some detractors in there and I try to put it in a way where I don't, I never try, I never attack anybody personally or point anybody personally out. I try to talk at it from like a third party perspective, like, like I'm some observer looking down and just, you know, throwing out some ideas for people to sift through. That's sort of what I try to do. Do you watch much YouTube yourself? Um, I, I try to, if I can, you know, I, I don't, 
it's just it's just time. Sometimes I'll have more times than others, but I don't get a, a chance to watch a lot of different bass fishing YouTube videos other than just ones that I'm subscribed to and shows up on my feed. But um, so other than fish the moment, which because obviously that's one you watch a lot. Um, well, what, what ones stand out to you as ones that you watch? Other than than YouTube cartoons, because Elijah, my five year old, but we're always watching YouTube cartoons, so I'm, I'm very well versed in that. But um, uh, the ones I like, I really like Roland Martin. I mean, I, Roland is so unique, and it's not like he puts out a bunch of information, but he keeps my attention. And it's like it's I have a lot of respect for him as an angler, and for the fact he's eighty some years old and he's he's doing stuff that forty year olds or thirty year olds are doing. I can sit and watch Roland for a long time, so I, I really I really like to watch him quite a bit. Yeah. And I would say that Roland, I mean, it's not often you can say this about Roland because he's such a trailblazer in the history of our sport in so many ways. But I would say that Roland kind of hooked onto your bumper and just do it like for all the production that you see with Roland Martin and all the things he's produced over the years. His YouTube stuff is about as simple and as about as, you know, it's very similar to yeah. yours. You know what I mean? Where he sets a, a camera or a phone up on, on a ledge and talks to it for a little while. Um, is that part of the, the, is that part of the reason people watch you? And is that part of the thing that attracts you to Roland? There's no glitz or glamour. It's just a guy talking. Well, in my situation, it wasn't intentional. It's just because I didn't know any better. I didn't know how to do that. So, as a as a as a just a a gift from the universe or whatever, I fell into that particular style, and it and it resonates with a lot of people because a lot of people were used to the trailblazing YouTubers that had the music, the drones, the the heavy production, the slick photography, and something's a little bit different stands out. One of the things that I sort of figured out, and I, again, I figured this out just by by not knowing any better, is the thumbnails on your videos have such a huge impact. Thumbnails and titles are everything. But there was this one study that they were doing. There was like, um, uh, they were figuring out what type of thumbnails were most effective. And in advertising, they said that, like, if you're following a semi-truck down the highway and you've got some type of a generic ad on there, like some type of a generic font that you know just looks like a typical ad you see every day nobody pays any attention to it but but then some of the trucks out there that look like somebody spray painted a message on there like you know just like you know drew it on there with like a can of spray paint everybody started paying attention to that and like i can take a pair this is one of the things that i do on mine i'll take a, t a piece of duct tape and i'll just see that on there and everybody just loves that. They just, it's like, there's nothing on there except me with magic marker and duct tape, but it's so different. And it's something that it clicks in people's minds and it appeals to a group of people. So uh, there's, there's a lot to it that goes beyond the obvious, you know? Yeah. And I think that just the, the repetitiveness of being there, like to, to, I mean, you get one person to watch one of your videos, like literally watch one of your videos and drop a like with the amount of content that you're continuously putting up, they're going to see it all over their feed just because, yeah. I mean, you like a video, that's how an algorithm works, right? I mean, they find out what you like and what gets your attention and they want to give you more of it. Um, yeah. Has your growth 
sped up or has it been consistent the whole way through, do you think? The growth in my channel has been in the uh, views on it rather than the subscribers much. But here's what a lot of people don't understand, especially like people, marketing people. It's not how many subscribers you have. It's how many views you have and your watch time. So like I'm getting, you know, 1.7 million views a month off of 80 some thousand subscribers. And that that's a pretty good equation as far as the walk, the views versus the subscribers. So I think a lot of that has to do with the content that you put out. A lot of guys that have these giant YouTube followings, like hundreds and hundreds of thousands like that, the number of views that they get per their subscribers is pathetic. It's really bad because the content doesn't come in regular enough. It doesn't hold their attention. And I think there's a lot to be said by, by people can get up every morning and they'll say, yeah, we're going to see a video from this YouTuber at this time or twice a day. And it becomes part of their routine. I mean, I've got a lot of people that say, yeah, man, I just turn it on on the way to work or the way, way back from work or something like that. And I think there's sort of a, there's a comfort that comes to that a little bit. Um, it, yeah. And there's a couple other YouTube channels. I watched this one. There's a guy called Bo of the fifth. He's sort of like a comp. He commentates on world events, that type of stuff. He puts out two or three videos a day and they're only like two or three minutes long, but it's like every single day he doesn't have, he never uses a thumbnail. His thumbnail is like him in his garage talking. Sometimes his mouth's wide open in the thumbnail. Sometimes his eyes are closed. This dude's got like 800,000 subscribers, man. And he's got, wow. he'll, he'll get a hundred thousand views in an hour. So it's, it's about what you put out there a lot of times rather than the flashiness of it. Yeah. And I think that the, the one word you use is, is it's community too. I mean, that's all social media. Like it, it's the reason that pre-social media, it's the reason that breakfast radio shows work because mm -hmm. people are in that car at that same time. And they, they be, you know, you hear that like when somebody's not there, when, when even on a breakfast television show, whatever you watch in your area, whatever it is, people are like, well, where's so-and-so that does the weather? I mean, they don't yeah. really know so-and-so, but they feel like they do. And reading the comments, it feels like a lot of your viewers know you, like feel like, you know, Randy's their buddy. Yeah. Yeah. You get that a lot. And then, you know, I've got people that comment, daily on the videos so i feel like i know those people you know because i see their name every single day um so man i really like it though i and you know i don't know about on you on yours day but it's like i i've gotten to the point where it's a big part of my life i really enjoy doing it you know i enjoy you know sharing the information i you know obviously you know youtube's a great deal to be in as a professional angler because it you know it, it gives you an additional source of income and that uh uh, is really nice. So it's, it just works out really well. I wish I'd have got started in it a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I, I agree totally. I mean, and here's where I, there was a time where I didn't like YouTube. You know what I mean? Because you feel like I've worked hard and got a show on TV and done all these different things. And now there's this other thing that I need to be part of and And you start to become part of it, but it literally like every social media, it's a monster that can't be fed. The more you feed it, the more it wants. And, um, but the big switch for me was like, once I started just saying like, I stopped paying attention to, like I used to try to crack the code. Like this is the kind of video you got to do, or this is the topic you have to talk about, or this is what you have to feature 
to get plays. And now I know that like some of the stuff you put up, like, I mean, we get a lot of traffic from the underwater stuff that I put up and there'll be underwater shots that I put up, Randy. And I'm like, this is going to explode. And then there's other ones that I put up and it does. Okay. It does. Okay. And then there's other ones they put up that I'll be honest, there's some shots you put up that you're just feeding the monster that day. It doesn't yeah. like when you, you, it, they're not kids, they're underwater shots. I've shot thousands of them at this point. Mm-hmm. So I do have favorites and I, I, and I have ones that aren't favorite, but, but I mean, they're all cool shots, but there's, I learn over and over again. They're like, wow, everybody's responding to that one. And if you had said to me of oh, these two, which one gets the huge traffic? A lot of times I can't pick that, but I'm also like, so what I was getting to is YouTube, I've started to love a lot more from the moment that I just stopped caring about plays almost, to, to, you know what I mean? Like you do care, you, you know, you, you want to do stuff that people want to watch, but I also know that like, because I thought that one underwater clip was awesome and it didn't get as many plays doesn't mean it's not awesome. It's still awesome. We're all different people that have different things that scratch our itch. And we're also on a platform that it might just seem better in number wise, because there was a giant storm that day and everybody's stuck inside at home flipping through YouTube. You know what I mean? Like, I know there's a lot of it that you're not in control of at all is my opinion anyways. Yeah. Well, I know like on yours, you know, you do the YouTube shorts with the underwater stuff and, you know, so much of that, like everything else is a title on. I mean, you don't know what title is going to hit right in correlation with the video. And to me, that's the thing that takes the most time is to is to come up with a title that's not too clickbaity, yet it's enough to draw their attention that something different. And that's the true art form with YouTube that some guys have got down to find find line there. I, I, I'm shocked that you said not to click baby, because I mean, Randy, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours, but I got to tell you, I don't think that you have a level of two click baby. I no, mean, I, you, you will, you will throw up a 80% of anglers on earth suck because they're not doing this. You got, here's the deal, how that works on there. And actually Johnny Schultz clued me in on this one. He, he's the one that really helped me get started with YouTube it's like Johnny said, a lot of times on some of the titles with his videos is he'll put a title up. And if the video is not performing as well after about 15 or 20 minutes, he changes the title. And that is so key because you can change the title around and just triple the amount of views you get just by a word or two. So I don't like to do that. I mean, I would just much rather say, you know, how to fish the square bowl crankbait in the summer, but nobody will watch the thing. It's like there's something about it that people get drawn in by a train wreck a little bit. I mean, and th- that's that's the one thing that's probably the most frustrating thing to me about it because I, I can put out, like last week I did a video on light intensity. Which, really cool video, which it, I really enjoyed. I thought it was it was so important. If you, and you got, you know, as being a fisherman, Dave, it is so important to understand that, but most people don't care. They do not yeah. care about stuff like that. And you try to, to teach people, say, man, this is the stuff you need to be watching here. And a lot of people, they just watch it to, as a getaway. They don't want to have to think. And I, I understand that. I mean, I, I understand that's just, you, you need just to decompress sometimes and you don't want to have to, you know, figure things out too much. <laughs> <laughs> it it it's a it's a necessary evil, I guess, to to put.
put those kind of topics up there. And it, I find it so weird that there is a lot of stuff like that, like you said, that, that is real hardcore educational stuff. And, and it's not just you. I mean, you look on a lot of different channels. I mean, there's Tactical Bass is one of my favorite channels on YouTube. And and you look at some, they have a really good hardcore audience. Like I see their numbers very similar day after day. Like they're all big. But I mean, there's some of their stuff that you're like, this should explode. But it, you're right. Most, like the majority of the audience just wants a quick kind of, put this snap ring on and your bait will do this and you'll catch way more as opposed to like trying to understand any of the other stuff. A guy that thinks like you do, because I would say as a fan of you, you've always thought different. You've always, your mind has been an advantage for you in this sport, in my opinion. You know what I mean? To, to, to do some of the things that you've done in history, to, to try change, give yourself an advantage on the water shows that, how you think through things. Do you find that part of YouTube frustrating that some of that stuff isn't as respected as you would hope? Yeah. I mean, as far as just from a, a pure educational standpoint and being a teacher, it's sort of frustrated there, but I understand enough about human nature to know what attracts people to certain things out there. And it's like, again, every demographic's different on what they're trying to get out of it. And the thing about bass fishing YouTube channels is you have to realize that everybody is at a different level in the sport. I mean, some guys are, they don't know how to rig a Texas rig worm and other guys are pros, you know, and you got everybody in between. So it's trying to figure out something that appeals to a broad audience there. And unfortunately for YouTube and in my deal, it's, it's controversy. Controversy is the number one thing that gets views. And I could put out, I could put out controversial videos every single day, but everybody would hate me. I mean, for doing that, get a ton of views, but I don't want to go down that path. So I try to, I try to do things that spice it up a little bit, yet educate. And I'm, I'm learning every day. I mean, I, I, I don't claim to have all the answers on it. I just sort of, you know, just sort of putting along every day differently. Yeah, it amazes me when you say you don't know what you're going to talk about. Five no. minutes before. I mean, to, to me, that just amazes me just because, uh, I mean, the, the thought of what to talk about for me is always the longest part of the process. You know what I mean? Like in any situation, like it, it, once I figure out, okay, we're going to talk about bobbleheads, yeah. I figure I can spit out enough stuff that some of it will make sense and some of it won't. Um, but, but it, it takes me a while to get to the point where I'd like think, okay, today we're going to talk about bobbleheads as opposed to whatever. So it amazes me that you go into it as blind as you do. What do you tell people you do when you, if you were going to a party, let's say they run into Randy Blockett and I was explaining you to my kids. Like they were like, who do you have on the podcast this week? And I said, well, Randy, I had him on before and everything. And, but it's not easy to explain to you. You know what I mean? Cause you're a YouTuber a bass fishing hall of famer, I would think, you know what I mean? The things you've accomplished in this sport. Um, but you're all of that. And it's all, so what do you tell, how do you explain who you are? You know, the more that, that I get doing different stuff like YouTube and working with fish the moment. And like I said, all the stuff I do with Bridgeford foods and you know, the on the water lessons I do, it's hard to explain that. I just, 
basically tell them I'm a professional angler, you know, because I still fish tournaments and, yeah. and thing that I do is sort of build upon that foundation of being a professional angler because every everything that I do, like with Fish the Moment and with my YouTube, is the result of me fishing professionally for 35 years. I mean, if I hadn't have done that and, and went through those frustrations of, of fishing professionally for so many years, I, I couldn't give this information up. And I don't think a lot of people out there realize how how difficult it is to be a professional angler for that long on a full-time basis. I mean, it. you've been around enough guys, you know what we're talking about. And the, the guys out there, the old timers like Nixon and Clun and Brower and Biffle and all those guys, they know what I'm talking about. It is, there is so much that goes to it that the public does not see. And even guys that have not, that have just been doing it for 10 years, they haven't even seen it. So when you go, when you spend decades of your life and you spend a, a large portion of your life dedicated and committed and sacrificing to be a pro angler, there that, I mean, that gives you so much experience. I mean, on a lot of different levels to put forth. And I agree. And, and I, you know, I'm a huge fan of the history of the sport. And, and I think that anybody that doesn't pay to the, attention to the history is a fool in anything. Like you need to yep. learn from the past. There's a reason, there's a reason you're smarter at 40 than you are at 14. And it, it doesn't matter who you, who it is that that is even a 14 year old. That's going to get mad hearing that right now. Don't answer until you're 40. And I guarantee you, you'll say, you know what? You were right. I was, I was pretty stupid at 14. What do you say to people that, that would say, that that very thing about how tough it is to stay in this sport as you age and, and not specifically you, but anybody, there's some people out there that say that's a problem with this sport in the way that like a Roland Martin is still collecting from it. A bill dance is still, and, and those guys I'm huge fans of, but I'm just saying when you look at other sports, people go away. You know what I mean? People stop taking from it. It, is there any validation to people that say that the younger guys don't have it as easy because the older guys are still here? Well, I think that as you get older, like I said, your, your, your performance is going to drop off. I don't, there's nobody that has been immune to that. Even Kevin Van Dam, all the top guys, when they get into their fifties, their performance starts going downhill. That's a, a natural progression. Nothing wrong with it. That's just the way life is. So all the guys that get older, like myself, they have got to morph and they've got to transition into some other type of role other than just being a hardcore, hard charging Jacob Wheeler, Brandon Polinek type pro fisherman out there. That's just, that's, that's part of where they're at at the time. And I think everybody out there, they've got to find that uniquely to themselves. And some people just drop off the scene. I mean, you look at guys like Basil Bacon, who did good for so many years and Bajel's he's just retired now. He has been forever. Some guys lose their motivation, but the main thing about it, in my opinion, that challenges that as you get older, is your family life and your family responsibility. Yeah. You've got, you've got more and more responsibilities piled on you. You realize that you have less time on earth every single year. You want to spend more time with your family. You don't want to be gone for weeks on end to me, that is the thing that deteriorates, you know, guys' performance or income potential or whatever as they get older with that. And 
I don't know, unless you have your family traveling with you all the time, which a couple guys do, it's hard to, to get around that. I, and that's to me the hardest thing, even the, you know, Silfish and the Bassmasters opens in the Toyota series. Now I just, I can't stand to, to get away from the family. And before when I didn't have a family, that was a non-issue. I mean, you didn't have that. You, that wasn't even, that didn't even enter your mind as a distraction. And where now it's, for me, it's the primary distraction. Yeah. Yeah. I think it testosterone is a powerful, powerful drug that runs within your body. And I think that people don't stop to think about when you're in your twenties and early thirties and younger, I mean, teenage years, whatever, there is a, you want to conquer the world. You, you know what I mean? I feel that's a natural. And, and as you age, I feel like your goals just, you value, you know, whether you had a family back then, didn't have a family, you value that stuff. You realize that time is fleeting and, and maybe that shiny trophy isn't as valuable as I once thought. You, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like you, you, you see it for so many reasons. And I think it's also natural. You know what I mean? As you, as you age, you you think and, and look at things differently. I mean, how do you feel like if I took a 27 year old Randy Blockett, and put him in picture in picture with you right now, how similar would your opinions be? Well, I mean, when I was 27, that's all I wanted to do. I mean, I was hard charging. I didn't, I ate, breathe, sleep, fishing all the time. When I was at a tournament, I was completely 100% focused on the tournament, on, on my, what my strategy was for the event. And the difference between the 27-year-old me and now, it's like when I'm in a tournament, I'm thinking about all the other responsibilities that I got to take care of at home. And the, the amount of energy I put into the tournament is, is minimal compared to what it used to be. It's yeah. like t- a tiny percent because you got a, so much other stuff going on. I don't think, I don't see how you get past that. And another thing that I don't think that can be underestimated is if you've been in the sport as long as I have, there's so many, whether they're real or perceived or whatever, injustices that happen in the sport that it hammers you into the ground. Because, for example, I've had I've had probably 25 or 30 Bassmaster events or FLW events where I had the fish on to win the tournament. And I've made, maybe I finished second or third or fifth or whatever in the tournament. But I had, you know, I had enough fish hooked to have like a, Kevin Van Dam career if I'd have got those fish in. And after that happens, tournament after tournament where you jump a four pounder off or or whatever, that chips away at your your desire and your enthusiasm and your the uh the thing that makes you feel alive about fishing when you have that decade after decade. And to me, that's been the most that has had the biggest impact on me, uh, especially after a couple of things that happened in 2002 that I just never really recovered from in, in tournament performance like that. So it's, uh, I don't think that can be underestimated. Some guys have not experienced as much. I, I've heard some guys say, well, you know, I've never lost any that cost me winning anything. It's like, God dang, you know, that'd be nice. Yeah. I don't know that there's many of those. Um, I had a veteran tournament pro, uh, tell me a story and I won't even use his name because it doesn't matter. But he had said that, um, he said, I remember when I was in my early twenties and I was fishing, you know, what was the elite series then, you know, top one fifties. Mm-hmm. And, um, he said, I remember an older pro 
it was one of the years that the Atlanta Braves were in the World Series. And I remember an older pro coming up to me in the morning and saying, did you see that game last night or whatever? And I remember thinking, how do you even watch baseball when you're at a bass tournament? Like, how is, how is, how is your thought on anything else? And then one day, he was in his early 50s, and he found himself watching a bass turn or watching a baseball game at a bass tournament. And he's like, wait a second. It happened to me too. It, it just, it, people change and, and, and like you said, the distractions off the water and everything. Um, but I think what you just touched on there is, is the deepest, darkest truth about the sport. It is a soul crushing, heartbreaking endeavor that no, it's really easy to sit on a chat board and say, I would have done this, this, and this, but that ain't, the real deal when you're never mind what happens on the water and you're so close, but on the way home from that, you have a double blowout and it's pouring rain sideways. It's three 30 in the morning and there is nobody there telling you to keep doing it. Everybody that is connected with you for the most part, unlike other sports like basketball, baseball, things like that. I imagine like you have a bad game. People were like, stick at it. You got this in fishing. You're surrounded by aunts, uncles and cousins that are like Randy is it time to give up? Like, is it time just to, that, that's yeah. also one of the, th I think it's, I think people way underestimate just the burden that becoming a pro angler is. And that's why you see growing men cry when they finally win, because it's so rare. Like it's not a yearly thing. It's not a, I mean, the greatest to ever do it. In my opinion is Kevin Van Dam. He didn't even win once a year. <laughs> Came yeah. very close to it, but he didn't, it's more rare than Christmas to win at that level. And I think people underestimate just how soul crushing that lifestyle can be. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a quick example here. What I'm talking about in my situation um, in the 1996 Bassmaster classic, you know, Danny won that tournament. I finished third in it, but I lost two fish in that tournament that would have won me the classic. And up until that point, I never really had experienced that type of loss as far as on a deep emotional level, knowing that you don't get that many chances to, to win something like that. And so that brought that to my awareness. And then, you know, I, I had good years after that, quite a few, but then in 2002, when I went down to that Ranger M1 tournament that they had at the Mobile Delta, mm -hmm. uh, to make a long story short, you know, if, it, if that tournament would have been a cumulative weight tournament, I would have won it by 15 pounds and I would have won a million dollars in that tournament because with all the incentive. Um, so I led the tournament the first three days of the tournament. They scratched it out to zero the last day. I caught the biggest string of the week, the last day of the tournament. And, and David Dudley beat me by five or six ounces in that tournament. And that was crushing. But the thing that happened is the week after that, we went to the Bassmaster Top 150 at Lake Eufaula and Denny Brower beat me in that tournament by one ounce. And I had three gizzard shad spit up in my live wall that last oh. day, weighed about six ounces. So I came from these two tournaments where I should, it's like, I remember laying in bed after that. It's like, I should have won a million one hundred dollars the last two tournaments. I said, I'm never going to get a chance like that again. It'll never happen. And since I won that in one tournament by 15 pounds on a cumulative weight. And I actually had the, you know, that what happened with the deal with Denny, I never recovered from that Dave. Even to this day, that had such a profound effect on a part of my being that I can't, I couldn't shake 
that I never really did that great after that event happened. I was at the top of my game at that point, you know, when that when Denny beat me by announcing that tournament. But something like that, I allowed that to affect me on such a deep level, and I tried not to. I was very aware of it, but it, I just could never recuperate from that. I just felt that was such an injustice, and I think a lot of guys go through that that don't talk about it. I think that's one of the, one of the things that really puts your fire out quite a bit. What was going through that like? I mean, like, obviously you said you've never been able to shake it, but but would you explain it like a depression, a fog, a, a ill contempt to even, like, want to be part of this? Like, what, what, what were the first few months after that it, like to be in it, your head? I was, after that happened, um, you know, the, those two weeks back to back like that, it was, I was, I was hard to be around. I probably was, you know, I seemed like I was mad around everybody. I, I, but I, it, that was something that I put so much emotional and mental energy in for my entire life to have a, a career defining week. I mean, nobody would have ever done that before to have that sort of snatched away from you, not knowing or knowing that you'll never, ever get that chance again. That I, I, I told myself, like, you got to move past this. You, you know, look at it like, man, you fished great. You finished second two tournaments in a row. You won hundred thousand, hundred some thousand dollars in two weeks. And I kept telling myself over that again. And it just never did sink in. I just could not get that to sink in. And uh, I, I'm, I don't like to even admit that because I've always been somebody that, you know, tried, I pride myself on being able to, you know, move forward stuff and be positive. But man, when you're that fully invested in as a professional fisherman, like I've been since I was 12 or 15 years old, and then you have the thing like what happened at the Bassmaster Classic where, you know, if I hadn't lost those two fish, then you're up at a different level the rest of your career. Nobody can take a classic champion away from you. Um, and then that to happen from a competitor standpoint, I've never been able to recuperate from that. And I, that's why, uh, like I said, something happened and I just, you know, I've, ca I've caught fish since then, but I've never, I went from being at the top of my game at that point to like off a cliff just on that one week, that, that two week period. And one of the toughest parts I would imagine is just the weird attitude about loss in the sport of fishing, like you're supposed to smile and be like, okay, well, it wasn't my time. I mean, you lost two fish in that tournament. And I know there's keyboard warriors who'd be like, yeah, we all lose fish, whatever. But you also have caught, like you said, thousands of days you've been on the water. You've also caught thousands of fish that you did everything wrong with and shouldn't and still got in the boat. So you know how simple, you know, whether it was right, wrong or indifferent, you know, how close that was to tipping in the right way, but then you get back to weigh in and then you show up for events the next few weeks after that. And I've heard people tell anglers this and it drives me crazy. Just, just smile. You, you need to be good at that. No, it, when you get kicked in the nuts, it hurts and yeah. you shouldn't smile. In my opinion, you know, it's one of the weird things about fishing where you should be a, a graceful loser you know what I mean? Like congratulate the winner, but I don't think that there's any part of you that should be happy about it. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it sucks. It's, it's horrible. Um, and I, I think that makes it tougher. 
you know what I mean? Just the fact that, like, I, if I'm correct, those were prime Fujifilm days. You were smiling on the front of posters and doing meet and greets yeah. at every single event and probably had to deal with that over and over and over again and smile while you're doing it. Yeah, I, I knew it because, like, I, I remember that last day of that tournament. We, it was, it, that, that Mobile Delta tournament, it I've never fished better in my life. The last day of the tournament, I ran up there to where I'd been catching them. And like I said, I caught the biggest limit that I'd caught all week. And there was a local there that was the, driving the camera boat. And he goes, Randy, that's the biggest limit of fish I've ever seen taken this time of year. So I had like a 60-mile run back to the weigh-in. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's like, you just won a hunt. I mean, you just won a million dollars. You got a million dollars for the fish in that live well that's going to set you up financially for the rest of your life. You know, there's all this stuff was running through my mind. And then to have that just yanked away from you an hour later, it was, it's just hard to explain, man. It's just, unless you've been there, it's like the only, I guess somebody like Jim Bitter that, you know, had that fish flop back in the water when Hank Parker beat him in the classic could, could relate to something like that. But it's a, you cannot underestimate how that, as a professional fisherman, how that affects your performance down the road. That's there's, there's so much to the sport beyond just the, just going out there and catching fish and being hard charged. And there's such a, a, a mental, emotional part of it that, you know, does not get talked about enough, you know? Oh, I, I totally agree with that. If you were to be able to do that over again, and obviously the result would still be the same. I mean, the easy answer is, oh, well, I win the tournaments and then we don't worry about it. But but if you had to do the days post that traumatic back-to-back events, if you had to redo something with your career, is there something in your head that like I spent too much time doing this? Or, or is it like, man, I still haven't figured out how you recover from that? I, you know, I look back at that and I just, and, and I don't want to sit here and, you know, make it sound like a pity party for my tournament career because I've had a, a wonderful career. I've been so fortunate to be able to do what I've done, but I just look back and see how many dang key fish that I've lost over the year in tournaments that would have won tournaments. I just, it's almost like I'm paying some type of karmic debt, you know, for, in the past for you know, it's causing me to lose all these fish, you know, in this, in this lifetime, but it's been unbelievable, man. I wish you, if somebody could have been in the boat with me over the past 30 years, you'd probably been shaking your head a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's a heartless sport that way. I'll tell I mean, you another one about the 98 classic that sort of adds to that, that same frustration in pre-practice for that 98 classic. Um, I went up there, I took a jet boat up the river there at High Rock Lake, and I spent three days doing nothing except pulling logs off into the water that were up on the mud banks, pulling them off where they were, you know, you could see them, but barely. My plan in the tournament was just to run those those uh, logs out in the tournament. So anyway, the first day of the tournament of the Classic, I'm the last boat out, and George Cochran's the first boat out. So I run up there and I start running my milk runs of all the laydowns that I put out and all that type of stuff. And it's like nothing, nothing, nothing. It's like, what the heck? I can't believe I'm not getting bit off this stuff. And then I, George leads the tournament the first day. So I saw him up there towards the end of the first day. I, you know, he was fishing at one of the stretches where I put some of the logs in the water and he was leading the tournament. And after the press conference that first day, I said, George, I just want you to know that I fished 
I, I didn't even know you were up there till the end of the day, but that's where I fished all day. That's where I caught all my fish. I put those logs in with the jet boat and, you know, I'll be up there again tomorrow. And then the next day I went up there and caught the biggest stringer of the day because I was boat number one. George wasn't too happy about that. But in my own mind, it's like, God dang, you know, I just contributed to him leading the tournament right there. And so uh, it's painful. And, and, and I will <laughs> say this. Um, I don't think that your pity party in your career. Uh, I mean, I, I would say it takes tremendous balls to be able to even bring some of that stuff up because you know what I mean? That that's, but I also think that bringing some of that stuff up and talking about it, like you are here today, that is part of the healing process. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it, it, yeah. it's, it, um, it, it's just, a, it's a, it's a tough, tough thing. Um, yeah. I, and, and that's why, that's why I respect everybody that fishes so much. You know what I mean? Like I really do um, have so much respect for everybody that makes the walk. They, that's what they say in MMA and, and in the UFC, you'll be like anybody that makes that walk and throws them over their shoulder and walks to that cage and says, does it, but it's the same thing in, yeah. in pro fishing. Like anybody that literally takes the risk and, and says, man, I'm going to put it all in the line. Cause it's so easy every factory, every business is full of people that could have done it if they yeah. had, but they didn't. And, and if you do, um, I have so much respect for, for everybody in that, in that world. Um, and, uh, and I have a lot of respect for you, Randy. Um, and I also have a lot of respect for, for the people that follow you. I mean, it was amazing to me last time we did a podcast together, the amount of people that like, made mention that, Hey man, I'm, I'm part of Randy's group and I enjoyed what you guys talked about. It's amazing to see the power of, of your following, but at the same time, Randy, not to leave tournaments totally, but sometimes I think Randy block, it might be a little crazy. And, and I think that that's one of the things that attracts me to you. So I actually did a little research for our chat today. Normally I pride myself on, we just talk and wherever mm -hmm. it goes, it goes and. And I think that's great. Um, and, but some of the stuff you've said over the last while, um, I had to actually take notes because I wanted to make sure I got it right. Okay. And, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to, um, and some of them are just bizarre and some of them are like, how do you really think that? And, and I just want your real opinion on them. Sure. And um, because I, th I sometimes... Sometimes I think you're a little crazy, Randy. I think that crazy can be genius, too. First thing I'm going to bring up, this was a title. You should never wear underwear while fishing in cold weather. Do you really believe that? I don't wear underwear in cold weather. I do. The reason, <laughs> the reason that I do that is it's all about a circulation, you know, deal. And I just feel that the more circulation you have, the, the warmer you stay. And that's why I don't wear shoes when I'm fishing in the wintertime. I wear socks or, and sandals, you know, with... In the winter. In the winter. And, you know, I'll, what I'll do is I'll put a pair of wool socks on. If it's raining, I'll have some neoprene socks with sandals, no underwear, usually sweatpants. And I don't have any problem, man. I, I guide a lot in the winter here in the Ozarks, Jerk Bay Guide Trips. And that's my, that's my uh, routine with that. So 
Yeah, you can ask my wife about that. Ask, ask, say, can Randy wear underwear out there? And she'll tell you. And but and if people but, had but, heard to knock it. But 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 why did why not wear it underwear? Like, but I get the shoes, okay, maybe. But, but I well, mean, don't you deal with a massive amount of shrinkage, Randy? <laughs> no, I, I actually I started it. You know, one of my best friends was a retired Army Ranger Sergeant Major Rodney Schmelak. And Rodney and I practiced, he practiced with me for seven years and he was, you know, he was three tiers in Vietnam, you know, silver star winner. In fact, right behind me there, that's Rodney on, on the deal there. And anyway, he was telling me that the Rangers don't wear underwear most of the time because, you know, there's a lot of different reasons with that. But one of them was the, uh, the, the uh, circulation there. So Rodney was <laughs> the one from the Army Rangers that got me thinking about that. And um, that's why I adopted it into fishing. All right. All right. Good answer. Next question. And this is one I'm sure you are used to dealing with tournament wins that have been aided heavily with electronics should have an asterisk beside them. Mm -hmm. Do you really believe that? I do. I, I, I think that the forward facing sonar, not necessarily like just the 2d sonar GPS type of stuff, but I think forward facing sonar, there needs to be some type of an asterisk to it. Uh, beyond just the normal type of fishing. Um, you know, you've seen forward-facing sonar, what it does. You see any more, you know, you can't even go to tournament anymore. With, I, I don't know how many times I've lost count of guys saying, if I if I didn't have my forward-facing sonar, I wouldn't have won this tournament. You know, in other words, they're being aided 100% by electronics to contributing to that win. And, uh, you know, if you, you guys have followed my channel, you have two days, you know, my stance on that with it. And um, I just think that it's akin to, I'm not saying steroid use is the same thing, but when you see Mark McGuire hitting 70 home runs and he's this meat-covered steroid-injected robot, that deserves an asterisk just as using live scope uh, does versus traditional bass fishing techniques. But where do you draw the line? You know, it, where is there a objective method to decide where the line is? Because, I mean roll the clock back five, six, seven, eight years ago, you heard an awful lot of guys saying, I wouldn't have caught a fish without my side imaging. I wouldn't yeah. have caught a fish. You to, know, to with me, I mean, to me, the line should be drawn at 2D sonar. I mean, all, all of the 360 side imaging, forward facing, all that type of stuff. I just think that it gives the anglers an unfair advantage where you have some type of an income disparity that determines the outcome of the tournament. That can't be denied. I mean, income disparity when it comes to, to electronic technology does give some guys that can afford an advantage. But at some point, it's just like why the major league uh, hitters can't use aluminum bats. At some point, you have to say, we have got to institute some type of tradition in the sport where it maintains its integrity the way that it was meant to be. And all other sports have done it with their equipment. Bass fishing is the only one that hasn't done that with the technology. And I understand it's because of the money with that. If you, if somebody came, if there was an electronics company that came out there and say, hey, we're going to go back to the old school flasher. Um, we're going to throw this tournament organization $20 million. And this is what's allowed in the circuit. That's what you would see. Everybody would have an old school flasher on the boat. So until you take that element out of it a little bit, you know, I just think that it creates sort of a, a, that scenario I was explaining. I, I mean, I get where people come from where they dislike it and 
and they think it doesn't need to be. And, and it, I mean, I don't even know where I'm at with it, but I also think that it, it's it's not steroids unless you're saying that everybody gets to use steroids. That's the biggest difference. I mean, it's kind of the Lance Armstrong story. You know what I mean? Like they have since proved that he would have to, to get it. Somebody who didn't use steroids at those times in competition, the guy finished 19th in those Tour de France's or in the low twenties every time because everybody's using it. You know what I mean? So I, I mean, I, I don't think it can be compared to steroids um, because I think that 10 years from now, there'll be some technology that comes along where people will be like, uh, they should cut the limit at, at forward facing sonar. Now it's really gotten out of control. Well, it's inevitable, Dave. I mean, that's the thing about it. If you look where, how far we've come in the last 10 years in electronic technology and then multiply that another 10 or 20 years down the road, at what point do you say, you know, you know, this is just not right anymore? I mean, at what point does somebody say that? And I, and, and I think that's just the, I think anyone out there, even the most adamant forward-facing sonar proponents would say at some point, it's going to be too much. At what point is that too much? In my opinion, I draw the line at 2D sonar. Some other, some other people may have a different point of which, but I, I don't think anyone can disagree with the fact that, you know, eventually technology is going to transcend the fact where it's just not fishing anymore. It's just a commercial sport of, of just, uh, of just electronics. And I, I, here's another thing about it is I, is anytime I post a, a video like that, I can't believe how many people are on board with me. I mean, I expect that I expect the haters to show up and they do, but the vast majority, 80, 90, 90%, if you look through the comments, they're, they're in agreement with that. I, I've read through your comments and you're right. I mean, there's a lot of people in agreement with it. And, and like I said, I don't know exactly where my stance on it is. I, I just feel like the sport is the sport. You know what I mean? You're competing. You can pick that apart with everything. You know what I mean? Like people could say, well, you know what? When I competed, I could only use a 150. Now they got 250. So no wonder they're breaking those weights because they can run so much further than we ever did. And technology boats are better boats hold together better and that's you know what i mean like there's so many different reasons but i i feel like when you say to put an asterisk it it devalues somebody's accomplishment and i don't think so would you say that well, maybe we shouldn't even get into that because i do want to talk to you about the st lawrence river no, but would, would you say that jay shakurik who just cracked 100 pounds for the first time in smallmouth bass fishing you you say that as any that's a lesser performance than, I than no, I don't. Here's the thing about it. I have never one time attacked anglers that use forward facing sonar. I've never pointed any person out. I've never attacked anybody for using it. I understand. I understand from a professional fishing perspective, why anglers want to use the latest and greatest technology. In my opinion, I put the blame on the tournament organizations that allow it to be used because the tournament, the, the anglers are just taking advantage of the rules being, being legal to do that. The responsibility lies within the tournament organizations to police that a little bit more. And uh, at this point, we haven't seen that a little bit. I mean, my argument would be, it's like, why can't we draw the line at GPS and 2D sonar? That's way, that's the set, that's the standard. 
that's we're not going to deviate from that. If you guys want to use forward-facing sonar and, and live scope when you're fun fishing or whatever, or even in practice, even in practice, but in the tournament competition, 2D sonar, GPS, it levels the playing field. It, it, it eliminates that income disparity. It still keeps that magic, magic and mystery in the sport. And you don't have these guys sitting there glued with their heads, looking at the live scope, not doing anything else, but live scoping around looking for fish. I mean, that's, and I, I'm coming from a purist perspective a little bit on that, but um, I just, that some people, it's, it's just like, I, I did a video actually, I'm putting up a little bit later from a subscriber comment, a subscriber that sent me that, you know, very stance on there. It's like, some people just can't wrap their head around the mystery and magic part of sport. They, they see that as like a complete non-issue. So it's, it's hard to talk to somebody that when they can't grasp the concept in their mind a little bit. Yeah. And like I said at the beginning, I don't know what's right or wrong. I don't have really, I also give a lot of credit to fish though. Like I think that so many things have come in years you know, not just electronics, but invasive species and stuff that were supposed to destroy fisheries and the fish adapt, adapted. I think you're already seeing fish adapt now. There's fish that move away from your boat, like on fisheries that they're getting used to it. The fish are starting to adapt to it too. So I, I would also say it'd be interesting to give it a, a little bit of time and see what happens, but um, nobody's going to give them $20 million and tell them not to run high-end electronics so we won't really have that happen will we randy well yeah i guess i guess my uh one of the things if i could play a little game in my mind one of the things that i would do is like if i won the lottery and won like a billion dollars i would love to like put that into motion you know it's like we're going back to flashers guys uh gps is okay because like i said there's some safety concerns there it wasn't like the maps in the old days Man, I would see. I I would just love to go back to the '70s and early '80s where everybody had a hundred and fifty dollar flasher on the console and up front, and you just went hogging. You know, it's just. Don't, but here's the thing about it, Dave: don't don't discount what I just said there because I can promise you right now, if you took a survey of the average bass anglers in the country and you tell them it's like, okay, do we want to is should effort should forward facing sonar be legal? Should we go back to two D sonar? you know, the flashers, I can promise you the majority would want to, that they do not want to take that step forward like that. I just, I just, and I say that just from the percentage of comments that I, that I've received on my channel. I agree. There's a whole bunch of people that dislike it. I mean, there is a lot of people, but I also feel like it's become a villain in a lot of situations where everybody thinks everything is that. Like I think that, that for example, the St. Lawrence River tournament that recently just happened, 2D sonar played, but it played, or I mean, uh, forward-facing sonar played, but it played a lot less than it played at the St. Clair tournament the last time we were there. You know what yeah. I mean? It, it, so it's not, it's, I think a lot of times people like, like for example, Jason Christie with the Bassmaster Classic and all around the industry, all you hear is he did it old school, man. He did it his way. Did anybody watch the footage in the morning? <laughs> I mean, he caught them all forward facing on a forward facing sonar. Like it might not be the one highlight reel that you saw, but I mean, he, he, he definitely did it old school in the afternoon, but in the morning, a forward facing sonar was a big part of it. So, um, 
Uh, Let's talk about it from just a from a television a television perspective. Uh huh. Okay, you, I don't. Know, you you probably remember when Rick Klein won at the St. Lawrence River back in uh, was it nine or nineteen eighty? Wasn't it? No, it was uh, ninety something. I, I can't remember which one. But isn't it a lot more exciting seeing Rick Klein take an eighteen foot nitro out into Lake Ontario in ten foot waves? And burning a three-quarter ounce Stanley spinner bait and catching 15 pounds a day, winning the tournament, then to see some dude weenie worming around out in a hundred foot of water with forward-facing sonar, not never taking their their uh, eyes off the unit, which is more exciting from a from a television perspective. Well, I agree that the electronics makes it less exciting, but I would also say that a forward-facing sonar, if you if you restricted it to GPS and 2D. It would still be won by some dude, weenie worming out there in the middle of Lake Ontario. Because, huh? I mean, yeah. I mean, it just makes it easier for people that aren't, you know what I mean? Like you look yeah. at a lot of the anglers that they, they've been going out there and it would still be won by that. Like that, that's the other thing that I fight too. Like I don't see a ton of anglers that all of a sudden, hey, look forward facing sonar's playing and look at how he's kicking like who's come out of nowhere nobody i mean it's the same if you look at the standings um it's the same group of guys catching them in most situations you know what i mean like um so i mean i like i said i don't have a stance i'm not arguing with you about it i just i feel like it it's to me like it's the time you know what i mean like there's a bunch of dudes who were like, you know how many more fish I would have landed if I had graphite rods and braided line. (laughs) It, um, okay. So let's move on to one of the ones that made a big hoopla around my part of the world. And that was the St. Lawrence river. The St. Lawrence river is the worst place to have a tournament. How in the world can you say that? The, and when I say the St. Lawrence River, in general, I'm talking about North Small Mouth. Yeah, Lake St. Clair, Erie, all of that type of stuff. Yeah. Here, here's the gripe that I have and the gripe that I've heard from other pros, not just me. This is something that's been going on, is you can go up to those fisheries there and you can catch a four-pound average, close to a four-pound average, and not even catch a check, not even get a check. Or somebody that catches a four-pound, three-ounce average you know, gets a $10,000 check and 40 more points or something. Just you're talking about ounces that separate with that. Yeah. So the fact that you go up there and you've spent $10,000 to go to this tournament, you've worked your butt off from daylight till dark. You've done everything that it takes to get to that tournament that a lot of people don't even realize. And you catch a four pound average of smallmouth on the same level is catching a four pound three ounce and you get nothing out of it you get you don't get the classic points you should you don't get the money from it it just seems like to me that that is not fair i mean there's there's something that's that's intrinsically not fair about that system with that and that's why i always go back to the way the bassmaster top 100s were back in the the early uh, 90s was the fact that you had a combination of a weight and point format you know, to determine, you know, classic qualifications, which made it a lot more fair. And I'm not saying that everybody that goes to the tournament should get a check, but I just, and I don't even know what the right system is, you know, to, to 
equalize that a little bit. But there's something about that's why I don't like those fisheries up there is because you can perform at such an unbelievably high level and not get any reward out of it for it. Not it's it's not as much as it is if you go to the central or southern parts of the country a little bit. There, there's a little bit more of a separation, you know, in the, the performance. Because if you go to Lake Fork, you'll see some dude catch 100 pounds, but you look at who got 90th place on an elite series, and they're catching five pounds a day. You know, and that, that's not the way it is up on the St. Lawrence there. And uh, oh, I, that one, I I I I feel like that's sports. I mean, you explained that just a little while ago, you, you actually weighed more weight than David Dudley and he got a million dollars. It's how, but I mean, the ultimate thing is to beat the right percentage of anglers because the playing field all always changes. That's why the all time classic record is worth no more then when Kevin Van Dam won it with almost 13 pounds in Pittsburgh, it's still yeah. a Bassmaster Classic victory. Um, it is sports, but here's the difference: if I, if I don't get in a che- if I don't get a check in the tournament, I want to I want to not get a check in the tournament because I've had a suck tournament. You know, I don't want to I don't want to go up there and not get a check in the tournament and be hammering these big fish all week long and not be rewarded from that. Um, is that that's sort of the point I, I make on that. That's why the last the last northern tournament I fished was at Lake St. Clair FLW tournament. I caught thirty nine pounds for two days and barely got a check, and it's thirty seventh with that something like that. And I'm like, God dang, you know, catching four pound average and barely getting paid for that. I I felt sorry. I felt sorry for the guys that didn't get a check that caught the three and three quarter pound average. You're still performing at the high level, but you're not being compensated for that high level performance. I don't think you should be compensated for a suck level performance. And I don't have the answer for that. I think that something could be worked out, but I love, don't get me wrong. I love fishing St. Lawrence. I love fishing big smallmouth up north, but I just don't think they're good venues for tournaments. And another thing with that, it's like every, every tournament, it's the same deal now. Some dude's staring at a live scope. I get so many comments saying, it's boring to watch northern tournaments up, up there. They just, I was just, I, like I said, I preferred watching Denny Breyer flipping flooded willows with a jig, jacking, you know, three pounders winning the tournament. That's just sort of my preference on it. I just think that that's how sports works. I mean, and, and as a sports fan, I yeah. don't care if my team scores 100 points or 10 points. I really yeah. just, I'd rather see my team score 10 points. And the other team score nine points, then my team score a hundred because when they score a hundred, the game gets boring. Yeah, you want it to be tight, and that is as tight a tournament as you can have. So I feel like if you do, you know, like you had you had said in that same video that you wanted fisheries should be on tougher fisheries. You know what I mean? I actually wrote down the exact quote: "Tournaments should be on super tough fisheries where there is big differences in weight." Isn't that the biggest slap in the face to the fans ever? Like, don't fans like to see people catching fish? I, you know, I, I, I understand where you're coming from there. I can, I understand that point of view. And I'm not talking about that so much from a perspective other than staring at live scope. I'm talking about what it does mentally to probes up there, because I can guarantee you all those dudes up there that weighed in at St. Lawrence and they caught these incredible bags of smallmouth and didn't get $10,000 for it. 
they may have put on a happy face on stage saying, oh, I can't wait to come back, but I can promise you they were cussing on the way home. You know, that's just, you can't feel good about that. You can't feel good about catching it limits a three pound, 15 ounce smallmouth and not getting and driving home for 20 hours and having $10,000 being flushed down the toilet from catching almost a four pound average of smallmouth. What I'm coming from is from a professional anglers standpoint um, as far as what they have to deal with emotionally, financially, everything like that. But I get their point. I get your point of view. I, I can, I can look at it from both ways. I can make the argument both ways myself. It's just sort of my stance on it. That's yeah. why I love, like Lake Mead so much. I mean, I love tough fisheries. I love fisheries that guys can't stand to fish because it's tough fishing, that the weather's harsh, it's, it's, it's nasty out, the lakes are big. I mean, I, I, I love the adversity that goes with, with bass fishing. I don't want it to be easy. I don't want, to, I don't want somebody to be griping because they're catching three-pound, 12-ounce-ounce smallmouth and, you know, instead of five-pounders. But it, clearly somebody's figured out how to catch those five pounders because yeah. again, the same group of characters, you know what I mean? Like if you look at the top 10, it was remarkably similar to uh, the top, I would not say top 10 to top 10, but top 20, you know what I mean? Because I really like a 20 top 20, in my opinion, credit to the anglers. Well, I mean, it's literally one bite, one different, you know what I mean? That So if you look, they're all still near the top. Yeah. It goes back to, t- to lure technology also because it, you go back to the tournament like, you know, when Jimmy Houston went up there in 86 or when Clun won or, or those guys or when they won the team tournaments up there, we didn't, they didn't have finesse stuff like that. That drop shots weren't around then. Shaky heads weren't around, around then. Guys went to the St. Lawrence and they power fished. They fished topwaters. They fished jerk baits. They fished, you know, spinner baits. And that's why it only took 15, 18 pounds a day to win up there at that point at the most. I think, I think Clun won with like 14 or 15 a day up there. Yeah. Yeah. No, he did. And I would say that the fishery has changed a lot too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And technology yep. and, you know, and I don't just mean electronics. I mean, technology, just being able to get out in the lake, yeah. um, bigger boats, you know, more horsepower and, and just more ability to have done it and see it. And, um, it's definitely changed. Um, yeah. I tried to reel it back on a lot of different levels. I had a conversation with Ranger Boats. Um, this has been a lot of years ago, about 20 years ago, because I, I was sort of, when the 250s came out, I was sort of seeing the direction it could go to. And uh, I proposed to them, it's like, why can't Ranger set the stage, set the, set the standard where we back it off? It's like the maximum length for boats, top it off at 17 foot, top it off at 150 horsepower, you know, make these boats super sporty or they're cool to be in, but don't let it get any more than that. Don't stop making these 20 footers with 250s, 300s. And they just laughed at me and said, we can't make any money if we did that. That, I mean, that's sort of what it was about at that point there. So I've, I've tried to, I've tried for decades to try to reel the sport back in. It's, it's an uphill battle, man. Yeah. And ironically, like, I agree with you in the motor thing. And I've said that for years. I mean, I've said like, I think one of the biggest mistakes our industry made was going to two fifties. It just because like, I don't, I mean, people were putting one fifties on 19 and a half, 20 foot boats at the time they were going slower, but they were still doing it. So you'd still have guys going out on big lakes and you just be, 
150, but you can never dial it back now. Could you imagine like if all of a sudden one organization said only 150s, every Marine dealer on earth would be at the next takeoff ready to, uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be pretty, let's just say. Yeah. Um, this next one's kind of fitting because it's something that gets talked about on this next fishery we're going to, Lake Oahe. We, last time we were there, we were on the opposite end of the lake, and the big thing was you could only run so far because there's no way to get gas. I know that that rule may or may not have had something to do with you in the past, but do you really think it's a sound decision to allow pros to leave barrels of gas on the side of lake, river, ocean, highway, wherever to go pick up during a tournament? Yeah, I think that as long as they pick up the cans, you know, they, they can't leave their litter after the tournament, but they have to get it. But that's they shouldn't even have to do that. They should be able to carry gas in the boat with them like we did when I made that 190-mile run down the Mississippi River, where if you have, have approved containers, strap them in your boat where you can actually take the gas with you if you need additional gas in there. I had I had gas cans all over my boat when I ran down in that <laughs> FLW. Yeah, I had my entire back deck. I had six gallon tanks strapped down everywhere back there, and that I mean that, that's just to me that's primal bass fishing. That's real hardcore bass fishing, and they take that away from you, but allow the other stuff to be legal. But do you not think like as bass crew and as tournament coverage crew that that it's a sound decision. Like, I mean, yeah, maybe you were safe when you strapped your, you turned your boat into the cannonball run and strapped gas tanks all over. You probably were very safe, but there's a lot of eyeballs watching that will not be very safe and bad things will happen. No. Like what? I mean, like in what way? Bad, bad things in what way? Well, people will explode. <laughs> The areas will catch fire in today's gas prices. You might just show up and it's all gone anyways because people stole your gas. Maybe another competitor steals your gas. Yeah, I, I mean, I here's my, and per that video, here's my sort of feelings on that. I think if it's, if it's legally, if it's legal within the state and federal rules, I think it should be legal in tournaments too with that. And, uh, I mean, that's just use That's just using your ingenuity, in my opinion, like that. It does. Everybody can do it. It doesn't cost any more. Um, like I said, as long as it's legal, you know, in the state, why not? Did you I have did. any any other rules made after you that you're aware of? Um, see, the gas can rule for sure. Um, I know that was a fact. Yeah, that's I've always a, heard it was you. <laughs> there was a couple more. I can't. Yeah, there was a couple more. I can't remember what it was. God, I can't remember now. I think there was a couple back in the late 90s that we did some stuff. But maybe, maybe dragging limbs off into the water or something like that. I used to do that quite a bit before they made that illegal. But I was always trying to figure out things that I could do to give myself an advantage that people didn't want to do because it took a lot of work. Yeah. You know, it took a lot of hard work to do that. I mean, yeah. Gary Klein and I used to do stuff like that together all the time. And we got so many stories and that's one of the things I loved about Gary is he's, he had that same mindset of being able to really being use your mind and, you know, ingenious ways to try to give yourself an advantage for people who wouldn't want to do things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's as an angler, when a rule is it named after you, once you get past the, Oh, I can't do that anymore. That sucks. 
like looking back to is that like a proud moment like i pushed the sport to make a rules around me or is that it, like how does that feel well, as a person when they made when they put that gas can rule in there it was devastating to me because i relied on that there was a lot of tournaments where i did that where i carried fuel with me i mean that's not the only one there's several tournaments that i did that it allowed me to increase my range that you know put me out there into areas that other people couldn't fish or couldn't reach or didn't want to and uh that was what was exciting to me and that's what it, that's what was exciting to the fans too when the fans hear about stuff like that I mean, that, that's something that stays with you. People remember that after decades and decades. And uh, that's that's why, you know, that video I did talking about rules, there's so many rules that have been instituted out there that, uh, you know, just they don't allow you to do that. I mean, I think, I think maybe, God, what is there, probably half a dozen of them out there like that or something, but not getting out of your boat to make it more accessible and, yeah. you know, and not getting out of the boat or not being able to put both feet on a dock or something. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I mean, no scuba, that's Dick Garlock, you know, yeah. there's there so many different rules that, uh, so I'd always wondered like, how does that feel as an angler to, are you proud to have a rule named after you? Or I know what the initially it's frustrating. Um, a big topic that you did uh, that made a big stirring the days of real badass bass anglers are over. <laughs> Please tell me that was just a title, Randy Blockett. You don't really there, believe that, do you? Well, there that, that was there was a little bit to the title there, but the point of what I'm talking about was the the old school dudes that just relied on their senses. They had nothing else but their senses out there and their their instincts and their intuition to catch bass. And that's one of the things that Richard Gene, the fishing machine, sent me a message after that, said he agreed with that as far as the in, intuition and the instincts that is gradually sort of going away a little bit. Because you got to you got to admit, if you like today, if you the the average, the newer angler out there, the first thing they do is when they get in the boat, they fire up all five units. They got three up front. They got two on their deck fire them up, look at their GPS, they do this and that, get everything set up out there. Um, that is not the same as some guy getting in the boat, turning on his little cheap flash or something like that, and going down the bank and analyzing the bank structure, bank angle, sunlight angle, the light intensity, all the external variables that determine how to catch fish off targets. That's sort of what I was talking about with that. It's sort of, that's real bass fishing to me. I don't, I don't consider getting in a boat and turning on $20,000 worth of electronics as real bass fishing in the sense of the purest perspective. And, uh, and, and, I, and I just, I think it is so important to maintain that purest tradition perspective of bass fishing. I think that that's once you lose that, I think you lose so much of the intrinsic value of the sport. And unless somebody has been educated or can see the other side of that, they just, they can't wrap their mind around it because they're so wrapped up in the technology. What would you say to somebody that says it's harder today? Because, I mean, back in the day, people, I mean, once you figured out how to triangulate a spot and do all sorts of things, you had it a lot more to yourself. The biggest beef that, I mean, that's the next... You talk to some pros who like hate electronics and the next thing they say is they, the biggest reason they hate it is because now everybody has everything. 
And ultimately it's down to the angler, you know, winning the race and, and doing the right thing when they get to the spot. What would you say to somebody who says it's tougher today than it was back then? Well, I don't know if it's tougher. I just think it's different. I think that, I think that competitively, as far as being able to compete on the same patterns and the same technique, I think it's probably more tougher with that because everybody is educated in that position. But if you take that away from them, if you take those patterns and those techniques away from them, then what do you have? I mean, then, 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 then who, then what, you know, how does it go down from that point? Um, and a lot of it is just, I think a lot of people get burned out with keeping up with the technology. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, I started fishing offshore in the late eighties and early nineties down at Grand Lake. And I won a lot of tournaments regionally and locally triangulating fishing like David Fritz did with paper maps, lining stuff up on the bank. And then eventually as GPS and, 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 and newer technology came along, I wasn't near as effective because I didn't keep up with that. I didn't, I didn't want to have to buy something new every year. And that's, that's the difficult part of it. When you talk about being more difficult now, it is more difficult to stay up with technology if you're chasing those type of fish. Last question, and we've gone way light, long here, so I do apologize, but this has all been awesome stuff. Um, and I don't think I saw a video on this, but I got to get your take on it because it's one of the biggest topics out there. Um, and maybe I missed the video because I'm sure you did a video on this. The new uh, overall qualification for the, for, the, for the Elite Series through the Opens. What's your take on that? Good, bad? Well, actually, I, I just, okay, yeah, I did the video on that. And actually, uh, Gerald Swindle sort of insulted me on Stray Cast last night. Some of the one subscriber was telling me that Gerald was commenting on my position on that and called me a Missouri meth head or something, or I've been doing too much Missouri meth. Which sort of sucks because I got a lot of respect for Gerald. I don't, I don't have anything that's bad to say about him. But he was basically talking about how my math was was crazy on that. The point of what I'm take, talking about, why that expanded circuit is, is, is not a good thing and why it's tougher, is that now you have to commit to nine tournaments. And a lot of these guys out there that had the dream of fishing professionally, and it's like those three tournaments a year, those three central invitationals or whatever, they went to that tournament and that was like, that, that was like, they go to those tournaments and they were there, they were there maybe with some other pros and it was a dream to them. It's like, it may have been a pipe dream for them to qualify for the elite sort of make the classic, but nevertheless, that made them feel alive by going to those three tournaments that they could get away from work from to have a shot. At least they were there, they were casting, they had a shot at it. But now since you have nine events, all those dudes that are working weekend jobs, they can't get away. They can't get away for nine for so over nine weeks for over nine weeks off of work to have their shot. And they've always had that in the past before. And that's, that's the perspective that I was coming from, uh, you know, simply because I think it takes a lot of people's dreams away from them other than just making the classic. Now the elite series dreams are not going to be the same on paper. Yeah. Gerald's right. Mathematically, it is easier once you fish those nine tournaments but there's going to be far fewer people be able to pursue that like they did in the past. But here's what blows me away. And like I've said several times, I don't have a dog in the race or horse in the race or whatever the term is, but you, you know what I mean? Because I announced tournaments. 
But I will say this. I mean, Bass is no different than any other company out there. I mean, just like the companies that many people that listen to this own, it's your job to go to work and make money. And Bass does try to make money on pretty much everything they do. And they're very successful at it. But I will say one of the few things, like one of the things that really stands out to me, that Bass has no reason to do. Like, there's no reason other than just trying to get the right guys in the Elite Series and trying to help the future anglers that that because if, i mean if you're fishing three events and you i mean yes you've got an outside shot of making the elite series look at the success rate of a lot of those qualifiers that came from the opens it's not as high as mm-hmm. as people would expect they come to the elite series they are shell shocked because the difference between three and nine events is a world of difference they they are financially they, they're not tested financially. They're not tested geographically. They're not tested mentally to keep up with that grind. So to me, to do it for three events, I mean, it's worked fine. And and let's be honest, it is the busiest circuit there is out there. I mean, as far as demand and everything there is. So Bass literally changed it for no other reason than the right anglers to get the opportunities to make the dream more achievable. That's all the conversations I heard and all of a sudden, people have pulled this, hey, they're, they've taken the dream away. No, if you fish three, you can still make the classic. You can still, and, and I think that's the realistic dream through fishing the opens is qualifying for the classic. And to make it, it just blows me away how it became a negative with so many people. When I swear to you, the basis of this was nothing, nothing but to make it better and more beneficial for the anglers. I mean, I'd challenge someone to give me a reason why. Like the one reason I've heard from people, well, of course Bass did that because it'll make it easier for guys to come back from MLF. You really think Bass is making decisions to make it easier for the guys from MLF to come back? And I don't mean, I'm not questioning that. I'm looking at the camera, maybe that to people like, that is not the people they're catering to. I mean, or should be catering to. Um, so is there another reason that you've heard people say that, you know, I get it. Like you were fishing three and you hope to make it, but it doesn't get easier when you come to the elites. All the people that are like, well, I could take nine off if I make the elites and I would get all these sponsors. Yeah. But tell them the truth, Randy. It ain't that easy. No, I'll give you an example. First of all, I'm the biggest fan of bass. I love bass. Yeah. I- I've been following them since I was a little kid in grade school. I got nothing but great things to say about Bass and the people that work there. I love them. I'm the biggest supporter out there, but I can still have this conversation. And if I was say, Hey, maybe just consider this. That doesn't mean that I'm anti-Bass because I love Bass. Here's yeah. an example talking about. I had a friend of mine that won a big tournament this summer and he won quite a bit of money in it. His dream was to fish the elite series. That's what he wanted to do. And he's, that was, it's like he wanted to get in the position where he could go fish the Elite Series. He won this tournament. He was all excited about fishing the Bassmaster Central Open. It's a chance to make the Elites because that's what he wants to do is be a pro fisherman. And then they come out with this schedule of nine events. He can't get off of work for that. So he can't, his dream of qualifying for the Elites is gone now. And he was so pumped up about being able to fish three tournaments and having a chance to make it, even though may or may not have made it. And he is like so bummed out right now. And he's, and he's not alone. There's probably a lot of people out there that feel like that. That's 
that's sort of the point where I'm coming from. But yeah, I agree when you're, you're okay. You're talking about wanting to get the cream of the crop in the elite series. I don't, I, it's my opinion on the pros, whether the fish in the Bass Pro Tour or the elite series, I'm not taking anything away from the guys that are out there because I know these guys, I fish with them. I've been there on that level myself. The best guys, best professional fishermen in the country are not fishing tournaments. This simply because they're in the situation like my buddy. They've either got job requirements, they've got families they got to go to. So you have, I think everybody has to acknowledge that. The people that are pro fishermen are the guys that can get off and fish those nine tournaments. They're, they're, they have the ability to take off work. Uh, they're set up to do that. So, yeah, you're putting, you're getting the cream of the crop to that extent, but you're not getting the true cream of the crop because a lot of people can't, you know, get in there and fish the way they need to for whatever reasons like my buddy did. Yeah, but, I mean, you go to any arena in Canada and it's full of a bunch of dudes that should have made the NHL. If you yeah. go to any baseball, you know, men's league, there's, hey, that dude was this close. And and literally making it in any sport, in my opinion, is the this much. It's one. It's the 1% that says, I don't care about that. I care only about this. I'm full. You know what I mean? Like, and I hate that somebody was hoping to get that opportunity in three events. And like I said, I, I'm just amazed that, that, that it is literally something that Bass did for the anglers. Like there was, there's no financial reason outside of the anglers, just getting the right anglers there um, and giving anglers a realistic, you yourself has, have explained the elite series as it's like winning the lottery to qualify. Did the lottery just not get easier for you to qualify, Randy Blockett? Mathematically, it did. But at the same time, you still have that aspect of what I was talking about with that. I mean, that's still a reality that goes on as well. But yeah, mathematically, you can't argue that for the people that can do those nine tournaments, they are. And one thing that I would agree with what you're talking about there, if you're really wanting to become a professional fisherman and that's your sole focus and desire, you're going to fish those nine tournaments and you're going to sacrifice your job or you're going to get a different job in order to do that. I get that point of view, but I also have seen a lot of feedback just from my subscribers and people I've talked to that uh, they're not real happy about it. Cause like I said, it just, it shot down their dream for whatever, however realistic that was may or may not have been. So, do you think it would have been better if they didn't change any, like if it stayed the way it was? Well, I, there's a lot of things I could do. I, could, I would have changed a little bit for, I, I think that, yeah, they need to have it three different divisions and the qualifiers need to come off of every division. But I think there should be 20 qualifiers off of each division. that goes to the elite series. I think there's way too many people that are in the elite series that, that, that shouldn't be there performance wise. And if you, if you have that 20 angler turnover every year, then you constantly have that new flux of new energy in there. You can really see where, you know, the good talent is. And I just think that, I think the elite series is way too hard to get into and way too easy to get. It's way too hard to get into and way too hard to get out of too. I just, I disagree with that. Like, I mean, to, to unqualify, I, I watch them leave every year. 
I mean, if you look at it, and it, you know it's not 20. I mean, last year it was over 20. Um, but if you look at some of the, like, I mean, Frank Talley is, is on the edge of not coming back. Frank Talley has qualified for two Bassmaster Classics, won an Elite Series, and won the Opens to qualify to be in the Elite Series. Is that the kind of resume of a guy that hasn't pulled his weight? You know what I mean? Like You think in that time, if you've accomplished that much, and if it's easy to say, he should be staying, right? But it, it's not that easy to stay. Well, I, ha- I haven't seen the, the, the qualifying and the requalifying criteria yeah. hasn't been really transparent. So I'm not sure what the deal is. What do you think about the Legends exemptions? I think that the Legends exemptions um, are a good thing. Um, it, but I think that it's, a, it's always been a case-to-case basis. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that I, don't, I think people think that you, okay, I'm a legend and I get back. It's, it's a accepted upon thing. Um, but I, I, th- I mean, I can only speak from the legends that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I want Rick Clun to be there. You know what I mean? It, 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 Rick Clun is, is more to this sport than, than his tournament finishes. Um, and I'd love to see Rick Clun there, but I mean, if you've got a legends exemption, I mean, who, who's more worthy of it than Rick Clun? I mean, well, I, I, I don't, yeah, I agree with you on that for sure. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of past classic winners and angler of the year winners that aren't fishing for whatever reason on that. I'm, maybe they just don't want to. I'm not sure on that. Well, you don't just get it. Like, that is the truth about the legends. You have to apply for it, and mm-hmm. it has to be deemed necessary by Bass um, right. or, or accepted by Bass, I would assume. Um, I don't know well, who, who does the accepting or how it all works out, but it's not like um, yeah. just because you want a classic, boom, you can get back in here. Well, I stand corrected then because I didn't realize there was that type of turnover every year. I didn't realize there was 20 people that that went out from that. Yeah, 23 last year. 23 got cut last year. And, and yeah. hey, man, I, I get it. It, it, it. The first part of your statement, I do not disagree with. It is incredibly hard to qualify for the Elite Series. And, and here's where I thought that needed changed because I asked Davey Height, who is a Bass Fishing Hall of Fame career. Nobody would argue with Davey's resume. Yeah. Davey won eight Bassmaster events, um, won the Forestwood Cup, I believe, won, yep. won Angler of the Year over there, won Angler of the Year twice at yeah. Bass. He's a hammer, and, man. Yeah, he's a hammer. And also a Bassmaster Classic champion. Um and I asked Davey, I said, how many times outside of the two times you had one angler of the year, how many times were you in the top three for angler of the year? And he stopped. He really thought about it. And he said, I think in my entire career, he said, I won AOI in what was the opens at the time one year. So he said, so that would that'd be another time. And he said, two more times I was in the top three for angler of the year. So when you look at a Hall of Fame career and you're like, man, he's done this five times in his entire career. It's, it's too, that's too tough to qualify. In my opinion, you finish it to, to, to say you have to be in the top three to me, the nine makes it a lot more realistic. I got to compete against a hundred to 150. I get it. If you're in a factory or you're not even factory, whatever you're doing, if you're a, an accountant, getting that time off work is almost impossible, but that's also 
what this podcast started talking about, how yeah. impossible the dream of bass fishing is. And that's why I celebrate all you guys so much because of what you've overcome. It's the last thing anybody should have ever qualified for the elite series thinking is I'm going to take a shot. Because if you think you're just going to take a shot, you're going to take a shot right in the chin. And next thing you know, you'll be out. Um, it's something you got to be all in. Like you said, Randy, yeah. I mean, like you can't, you can't tiptoe into top level of any sport, I would imagine. But yeah. um, Well, like anything, like I said, there's two different ways to look at it. I can definitely see it from that point of view. I can see it from, you know, what I was talking about. I, I'll go back and I'll use an example like Trait Saldane. I mean, Trait had, you know, dream, you know, put herself out in a very difficult position, you know, yeah. or worked her butt off, had the dream of making the elites out there. And there's a lot of people out there like her, you know, that, that just really want it so bad, you know, and it's like when you want something so bad and can't attain it, that is a very frustrating thing, you know, very frustrating. Um, but here's what I'll leave that with. Everybody has opinions, but I can tell you there's like, let me know in comments. What is the other reason that Bass had to do it? Like, it's really easy. I love how Bass always gets painted as, you know, the big bully that's going to, you know, they're not doing this. And it, honestly, this whole decision um, from everybody that I've heard from or talked from had nothing to do with anything other than it needs to be more realistic for, for the anglers that want to make it there. Let me ask you this question here with that. And I have, first of all, I have no doubt that Bass has the anglers, you know, best intentions in mind. I don't think there's any malicious intent whatsoever there. But if you would have held a vote amongst all the invitational anglers and say, guys, this is what we're thinking about. Do you want to keep the three tournament qualification or do you want to go to nine? What do you think that the general consensus of the open anglers would be? I would say something like that to me should have been put to a vote amongst the anglers. Like it could have been a pretty easy, I think. Uh, it's, it's a tough vote to have, though, because all of a sudden, you, the, the I'm hoping number way outweighs the this is what I'm going to make happen number. You know what I mean? Like there's a hundred, like I think this year there was 90 something anglers who were fishing all nine. Um, so you got a hundred. Well, they just, the numbers in, if you're not fishing all nine, you would have voted the other way clearly right. and the numbers outweigh them. So I, I don't know that it's a realistic vote. I think it would have come out like, don't change a thing because that's what, the majority of the anglers would have wanted, but I mean, right. other votes that Bass has lost in the past, the freaking elite series. I mean, this exact same thing happened once before where everybody said they are nuts. The elite series is a, I'm leaving Bass. I'm going to FLW because the elite series is the worst thing to happen in the history of the sport. Um, and I don't think people look back at it. You know what I mean? Like when even saying that, I'm sure there's people listening to this that are like, yeah, Mercer's full of crap. That never happened. And you know, it obviously did happen with a lot of different anglers. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, yeah, you're right. They would have won. The vote for three would have won, but that's just simply because it, there's only 90 that would want the other way. Um well, wouldn't it have been fair, though, I mean, to have the anglers vote on that? You know, you'll have guys like Swindle that, that criticizes me for that. But what's wrong with having the anglers decide their own destiny with that overall? 
that democratic process that goes with that. Yeah, well, I mean, dude, we have a lot of votes. We, we, have a, we went from um, never voting to we do a lot of votes. Um, I, I don't know why they didn't have that a vote. I would say because you're also not dealing with a, I mean, that's a very different field. You know what I mean? Like, if you take how many anglers, like, I'd love to even look at that number in general um, of how many anglers that is in the three different, you know, because there's 250 anglers in each one, you know, and, and there's basically only 90 that are fishing all of them. So you can work at the numbers. I mean, you'd be looking at over 500 anglers, basically. I yeah. think by the time the math gets put together. Oh, yeah. Um, so it, it, I, don't, I don't know what the right or wrong decision is, Randy. All, I, all I'm saying is that definitely wasn't a... You know, you, you can you don't have to dig deep in anybody's comments to hear the you know. Well, Bass just doesn't care about the little guy. Oh, Bass I, doesn't. I mean, come on, really? I don't, I don't believe that at all. You know, that's not that's. I, I, yeah, definitely for sure. I, I, one thing I know about the open anglers, though, because I've you know fished in the opens as many years as I have, is that they are bass fans. Man, these yeah. guys are the hardcore bass master supporters. They love being there. Uh, they're just. It's it's a different energy completely than fishing the one fifties, the least one hundreds, that type of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's why I really like being in, in there because of that. Yeah, and and hey, and Bass loves all of those. Like really, I mean, that's what Bass is. I say all the time. Like I use the weird little tree analogy. You know, at the top of the tree, obviously, is the Elite Series, and the leaves get all sorts of sun on them, and everybody talks about them. But the but Bass. You want to see how bass works. It's the most important parts of the tree. You know what I mean? And and I would say that the opens is the trunk that leads to all of those. And then and the bass nations, that's the roots. You know yeah. what I mean? And all of those have to be strong for the tree to continue to grow. And 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 I, I think the opens will be very strong moving forward. Um well, but I think people I think the fact that people are so many people are spreading an opinion shows how passionate people are about it. If they didn't care about the opens, they, they wouldn't be as passionate as they are. You know, one, one reason I'm so vocal on all this stuff is like, I I've been around way back when I first started fishing bass, all there were were six Bassmaster invitationals. The 35 classic qualifiers came out of that. We had six tournaments, $600 a piece. That was the Bassmaster tournament circuit. Yeah. And we've seen the evolution. I've been there from that ground level foundation. We've seen the evolution over the years. And every time something like that and something new came about, there's going to be opinions on that one way or the other. But man, I tell you what, I tell you one thing, they, one, one of the things that the guys that are in my generation that fished back there when there were only six invitationals, that was it, you know, it's the energy that came with that. It was so strong and so unique that I think a lot of us just want to maintain that. That was back in the Ray Scott days, you know, Bob Cobb. There's just, it's a different feel to that. And that's why the old school dudes, dudes like myself have a different opinion on it than a lot of people today do. Cause they, they didn't get a chance to experience that vibe that we did back then. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I would also say that, 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 <clears throat> I'm a result of that vibe. That's when I fell in love with the sport. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it, 
But I would also say that that's what made that vibe so special because it was so different. There was one organization that was running tournaments, one big national organization. You know what I mean? There was so much. There were so many eyes. And now it's so, I mean, the pie's gotten bigger, but there's so many slices out of the pie. And, and it also, you know, if you won one of those events, although the, it wasn't on TV for a while, it wasn't printed in a magazine for a while, but everybody knew because there was only so many of them. And if you won one of them, you were no one. Now it's, it's, it is definitely separated and very different. Um, but I, I, it's kind of like I say to a lot of the elite series guys, you know, I've given this speech a bunch of times about how special those few years after the separation was. And I've had some guys in the last year kind of being like, be like, well, it's different now. And I'm said, yeah, but remember when I gave the speech about how special it is, it's why I was giving that speech because it's only special because it's, a temporary moment in time, you know, all of a sudden when people start getting cut, when, when not everybody's getting paid, all of a sudden that's the competitive part that makes it tough and makes it what you had talked about at the beginning, you know, um, it, it's, uh, but the coolest thing about the sport, if you ask me is no matter who it is, no matter what they're saying or what side they're on it, it we're all passionate about something that we love and, and, and we're the lucky ones. We found that. Because the world's yeah. search around YouTube, there's a bunch of people searching for something to bring right. them happiness. Um, and, and and we're not. We're lu- we're the lucky ones, if you ask me. No, I love all the guys in the sport, man. We argue amongst ourselves and disagree, but man, it's just there's a it's a brotherhood unlike anything else, you know. And uh, like I said, I've just been very fortunate to be a part of it as long as I have. I'm, and I, I hate to hear about the Gerald Swindle thing. If I hadn't known that, I would have I would have seen if we could set it up a three way chat. Well, I, I just thought some guys, some subscriber on my channel said, "Yeah, Gerald was trashing yesterday on Stray Cast," and I just caught a, a bit of it. And he he said something about Ozark meth or Missouri meth, and you know, bad you know math or something, but. Like I said, maybe I explained that a little bit clearer. Well, it's not, I'm not disagreeing with the math that it's easier. It's just the, the more abstract part of it, is, was my opinion. Yeah. Well, and hey, that's exactly what your videos are supposed to get, too. Yeah. That's why your channel's successful, because it gets opinions. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, if nobody says anything, uh, the channel's not near as successful. You know, <laughs> it, 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 all those comments stroke the algorithm. So yeah. it, uh, it's it, it, it's it's a it's a weird weird little world we live in. But I appreciate you spending all this time with me and being as open and honest as you as you have been. I mean, uh, even about the stuff before we started talking about some of your videos and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, I really appreciate your openness. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on, man. Anytime. I appreciate that. I don't. I I love talking about the sport in any form. I mean, like I said, if, if I didn't, you know, give a, the crap about it, I wouldn't be as passionate as I am about it. But, man, I just, you know, like I said, I, I've i loved it bass fishing since I was a little kid, you know, and I want to see it be sustainable and successful and maintain that same magic that made me fall in love with it. I mean, I want to pass that down. I mean, we're everybody watching, you know, your show here, I mean, we're, probably not going to be here in 30, 40, 50 years from now. So we got to make sure it goes on down to the next generation intact, you know, in its best form. Yeah. That, that, that's the reason I'm so adamant on environmental issues that I get a lot of heat for too, you know, as part of it. 
Yeah. Well, like I said, part of that heat is also part of the reason you're successful because you can find a lot of channels that nobody ever comments about anything. Yeah. Um, but uh, thank you for your time and uh, and uh, and thanks for the honesty. And um, although I think you're a little crazy with some of these, okay. I, I also think you're a genius in other ways. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm right there, but I also think that most geniuses are a little bit crazy too, probably. Yeah, you got to take those titles with a grain of salt occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Blockett, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to having you back on here again. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it, Dave. And there you have it, the one and only Randy Blockett. Whew, that was a long one. Thank you for sticking with us, those of you who stuck with us. If it took you two sittings, that's fine. Because the whole way through this podcast, I mean, so many cool little twists and turns. And, and I got to thank Randy Blockett for being honest and open and um, for answering a lot of the questions that I asked. Um, I can't wait to hear your guys' feedback. I mean, I really am looking forward to the comments here because generally when you record a podcast, you're like, okay, I know people will like this or they'll be intrigued by this or that was really interesting. But it's Randy Blockett. I mean, there's going to be some people that love everything he said. There's going to be some people that hate everything he said. He is a polarizing character, and um, I thank him for sharing his opinion here. And remember, they're just opinions. That's what all of these kinds of shows are about, people's opinions. Nothing's right, nothing's wrong. It's just his opinion. And... Um, and I thank him for being as open and honest as he was. And I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about this. Speaking of you guys, you're awesome. Week after week, you guys continue to grow this channel. Thank you. Thank you. To steal a line from Pat McAfee, be a friend, tell a friend. Well, I'm, I'm more creative than that. I can be a pal, tell a pal about this channel and keep us growing because man it gets bigger and bigger every week and that's not because of me or anything other than well some awesome guests that we're lucky enough to have here and some awesome viewers that decide to come here almost daily and that's when we put up content almost daily on this channel so i hope you enjoy it i thank you for spending time with us can't wait to read the comments and um as always Take it away, Bob Cobb. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Because Bob Cobb of the Bassmasters told you to. You hear?